This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. and welcome to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for joining us today. We're your hosts. My name is Marcy Davis, and my co-host is my trusty service dog, Whistle. And we're thrilled to be with you today to talk about our favorite subject, working dogs. And today, our guest is dog trainer and author, Susanna Charlson. And Susanna will be visiting with us today about her latest book, The Possibility Dogs. And this is a fascinating book about how she identifies abandoned dogs with potential to become service dogs. So come right back after these quick messages from our sponsors as we welcome Susanna Charlson to the show. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. Your dog digs a hole under your fence. And the next thing you know... Protect your pets with Dig Defense, the amazing new product that keeps your pets in the yard. Dig Defense is safe, fast, and easy. Each unit is made from 4-gauge galvanized American steel and can be used for repairing digouts, filling gaps, or to hold fences down so pets can't get under them. Dig Defense provides peace of mind that your pets are contained humanely and safely. Visit digdefense.com today. D-I-G-D-E-F-E-N-C-E.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Today we're welcoming Susanna Charlson. Hello, Susanna, and welcome. Hi, how are you? Great. We're so thrilled that you could be with us today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you, too. Well, and you have such a rich history with dogs. Susanna, tell us, how did you get started working with dogs? Well, you know, I came to dogs very late in life. I I mean, I think it's late for someone who is as involved with them now as I am. I didn't get my first dog until I was 28 years old, a gift from my husband. He was a Shetland sheepdog, Bogey. And, uh, you know, I think I was lucky in that my very first dog was from a working breed because he was a wonderful pet and a wonderful family member. But I noticed he had a drive to do, you know, a job born of generations of Shetland sheepdogs actually herding. And he would herd us in the house, you know, to kitchens and mealtimes. And he would herd my guests into a circle in the middle of the living room when we had a dinner party. And so, I, you know, I was always provoked and curious by him, about him, you know, just by his behavior. And I don't think it was a very big step from that curiosity to ultimately, I'm also a pilot and I was working some disaster flying, some support of uh, air support of uh, disasters and flash floods and that kind of thing as a pilot. And I don't think it was a very great step to combine my interest and willingness to engage in disaster and rescue work with my interest in working dogs. And so I joined a a canine search and rescue team in 2001. And I've been a canine search dog partner now for nine years. 
And, uh, you know, I think everything has a relationship. And so from my working dog and flying, I, I went to disaster work and search work beside a canine. And the search work beside a canine led me into contact with many families whose missing family members were often prompted to walk away, to stray, to bolt out of the house in the middle of the night by one form or another of some kind of psychological condition, whether it was Alzheimer's or autism or despondency and depression, anxiety of some form, phobia, storm phobias of some kind. And so in the search field, we encounter so many disappearances that are born of someone choosing to go. They Not that they want to run away, but they just flee or they just stray because of uh, an internal stressor. And so that, I think, originally provoked my research interest in the dogs that serve the human mind, uh, the dogs that are trained to be assistants in some forms of psychiatric condition where they can really actively help. That's lovely. What a beautiful way to start your relationship with dogs. I mean, that is such a great progression that makes yeah. perfect sense. And that is, is just so incredible because you just followed that path. And man, what a difference that makes to, to these families, like you said, that you were interacting with, with search and rescue. And you saw what the needs were that led to that crisis situation. And then how did you take that to the next step where you start? Started actually evaluating dogs for service? Well, I think what really led to it was uh, in 2003-2004, I experienced a search that we knew was going to be horrific, and it was. And at the time that I did the search, I was prepared for what we were likely to find in the field, but I actually came upon uh, something that, that we didn't expect. A young deputy and I came upon what we believe now was the abandoned remnant of a dog fighting ring. And uh, whoever had been running it had left cages and cages of bait dogs to die. Mm. And when we found them, uh, they were all deceased. And the sort of unexpected encounter with just tremendous cruelty mm. had an effect on me that, you know, at the time I, I tried to swallow and bury and overcome. I, I kind of held it very close to myself. I didn't talk about it. And I thought I'd gotten past it. And then about nine months later, I had symptoms that were very, very much a part of what we would call critical incident stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. And because my search team had trained me to recognize those symptoms, I did seek uh, counseling about it. And at the time that I was being counseled about it, I was also working with a brand new search and rescue puppy who was not at all a service dog. I mean, she was very much a dog driven to work, but she was very independent and willful and, and a high drive and high energy. And what I did notice was that in the process of working through my own grief and my own understanding and coming to terms with what I'd seen in the search field and what I'd experienced there, I've noticed that actively working with a dog toward a goal, and in this case, it was a very positive goal, and that was not just be an obedient, good family member, but also be a dog that can save other people's lives. But the process of working with her helped lead me out of my own despair, if you will. And so in partnership with the research that I was already doing about dogs that serve the human mind, I knew firsthand what the process of partnering a dog could do positively for someone who was presenting with various disorders. 
Uh, research was also telling me what kinds of, of dogs worked and, and what kinds of qualities they needed to bring. So again, in a very organic way, by being open to my own experiences and, and reading and researching and talking to people very widely, I came to know what kinds of dogs really are suited to this kind of work, this sort of intervention in the human mind and spirit, whether it's as a service dog partner, an emotional support animal that serves mostly at home, or the very important comfort dogs, they used to be called, and sometimes still are called, therapy dogs, that serve a community in crisis after a disaster. And as I came to know those traits, the beautiful thing is I learned that no one breed has them. I mean, they are widely distributed across all shapes and sizes of breeds and mixed breeds. And now it was about having my eyes open to those potentials in all kinds of dogs. That is so beautiful. And tell us more about those traits. What really are you looking for? Well, particularly, we'll talk first of all about the service partnership and specifically the service partner that serves both psychological conditions, mental health conditions, and mobility work. We are looking, first of all, for a dog that has no problems with people of any kind. Men, women, children, babies, all races, all ethnicities. We need a dog that, that is confident with humans. We also need a dog that is not aggressive to other dogs or to cats because a service dog, as well as, as ultimately a comfort dog for the community, is going to be in the presence of other dogs and be in the presence of cats almost inevitably. Yes, so they are. Be, yeah, <laughs> there needs to be no aggression there at all. We also need a dog who actually is attracted to humans. Is not only not afraid of them, but is really attracted and wants to engage with them. And, and in many cases, when we can find a dog that prefers human company to any other thing, that's a really strong plus. But we're also looking for trainability, a dog that likes to learn and a dog that enjoys not only learning tasks, but doing them and doing them self-directed in a self-directed fashion when they see something needs doing. That's awesome. And so how long does it take you to assess the dogs? Tell us more about that. Do you go to shelters and evaluate them on site? What is that process like? Well, it varies. We are greatly assisted in this effort by the emerging and and strengthening presence of social media on behalf of rescues. You know, I don't know that this would have been even doable 20 years ago before we had all these volunteers who were actively working in shelters and then posting and and posting pictures and posting temperaments and posting descriptions of the homeless dogs that they work with, you know, on a volunteer basis every day. So we are looking for flags often from volunteers who notice that this dog or that dog has an exceptional personality and uh, an exceptional trainability. Sometimes, yes, we just go into shelters cold because we've heard they've had an intake and, and maybe we've heard that several dogs have been rehomed because a loved family member died and, and the other family didn't have any place for, for them to go. And uh, sometimes a, a dog that has, has really come out of a, a super home condition and a, a super connected condition has a great potential already and, and we can find them and identify them very quickly. But yes, we do have to go through, even with those good write-ups, we can't just work sight unseen. So we go through an evaluation process at the shelter and, and ideally in a remove from the actual kennel environment, which is a high-stress, high-noise, 
sort of unfocused environment. And, and to really give a dog a fair shot, we need to, to be able to interact with them in a fairly private way and in a, in a way conducive to learning. Because one of the things we do is we look to see, do they want to learn something new? You know, if they already know sit, do they want to learn another trick? How engaged with us are they? And so from that first round of interviews and interactions, we usually go to a second round. And what I love to do on an evaluation is bring a second trained set of eyes. So I run an evaluation and that second trained set of eyes watches. We take a break, we come back, maybe an hour later, the other person runs the evaluation, second set of eyes watches, and we compare notes. That third-party observer from a distance can really sometimes see things you can't see close up to a dog. And we video record also when we can. And so from that set of, of experiences and the write-ups from the volunteers, or in the case of rescues, the write-ups from the foster homes, really help us make a very considered choice. And we've also got, of course, in hand, we've got clients who are needing a certain size, a certain type of dog for a certain kind of condition. So we're going into this already knowing we're looking for some kinds of dogs to match with particular clients. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, that is just, I just can't stress enough about how incredible dogs are and their abilities is just phenomenal. And it's just so amazing to hear that you're doing this and in such a practical way, which is really awesome. Well, we are going to take just a quick break and hear some really important messages from our sponsors. But we're going to come back and continue the conversation with Susanna because I know I have a lot more questions for her. And I know you, our listeners, want to hear too. So come right back. We'll be right back right after these messages. Stay tuned. Dog Shelter Blues, the new novel by Mark Conkling. This hard-hitting story lights up the world of animal rescue with engaging characters and their pets, struggling with their own internal demons as they attempt to rescue innocent creatures that sometimes bring a mysterious transforming power to broken lives. Read the first chapter of Dog Shelter Blues free at dogshelterblues.com. Then come along a breathtaking journey that ends with an astonishing triumph of good over evil. Order your copy of Dog Shelter Blues today. Available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Seeing, hearing, sensing, supporting, there's a dog for that. Did you know that assistance dogs include guide dogs, service dogs, hearing dogs, medical alert dogs, and even more? Celebrate International Assistance Dog Week, August 4th through August 10th. Organize or take part in an Assistance Dog Week event. For more information, visit assistancedogweek.org. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. And we're visiting today with Susanna Charlson, who's telling us about this incredible work that she's done and her fascinating book, The Possibility of Dogs. And before the break, Susanna, you were talking about the different traits and how you go in and and evaluate dogs from shelters. And I was wondering, what organizations are you working with and networking with in order to get the information about the dogs? Well, we work with a lot of rescue organizations. And again, you know, the beautiful thing about social media 
is it has made it possible for these very established volunteer organizations that partner with animal control and city shelters to get the word out about the animals in those shelters. And we are connected by email, certainly, and connected on Facebook as well. And so a lot of times what happens is we network with these groups nationwide, but we all are linked to each other on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And so sometimes when I'm looking for a specific client's needs, I can just open up my news feed from our Possibility Dogs Facebook page. And, you know, these guys, these volunteers are actively promoting specific dogs. And I can flag them and contact that organization and say, you know what, you've got a dog that looks like it could be a great fit for client A, you know, or client B. Sometimes they just have a superlative dog and they will contact me even between my my news feed scannings and say, you know, would you be interested in coming out and having a look at this dog? So the beautiful thing is that nationwide contact really is possible in a way that it wasn't so long, you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. And uh, I've Skyped about potential dogs. I've certainly tweeted about potential dogs. And, and then, you know, from that considered first round information, then we can make a decision about sending an evaluator in and that kind of thing. That's awesome. And what happens to the dogs after you evaluate them? What's that process where they go from the shelter to actually getting their job? Well, it depends very much on where the owner or or the potential partner wants to begin the partnership. We are an organization that supports what's called the Owner Co-Trained Service Partnership which means we're not a program that simply takes in dogs, puts them in kennels, trains them sort of uniformly, and then places them because the clients that we serve have absolutely individual needs. And so we need to custom select a dog for them and help them custom train that dog for their individual needs. For instance, at any one time, I may have three survivors of assault who have PTSD and anxiety disorders as a result of that assault. And the way their disorders present may be completely different. And so I can't pre-train a dog knowing exactly what those clients, I mean, that I haven't met yet, what those people's needs might be. So what we do for them is once they have contacted us, we begin looking for a specific dog for them. Now, some of of our clients want to begin the therapeutic process from the very first moment of obedience training and public access training and, and then to task training. They are up for that. They want to begin that engagement, that communication, that connection very early. And so they will go straight into the home and then we provide training resource support for them. And they begin the partnership with this excellent candidate dog very early. Some need to begin the partnership after the public access test has been passed and the dog has got really, really excellent obedience skills. And that's commonly our handlers who have some mobility issues as well, who might not be able to to really be a good partner in the first training of heel, for instance, or, or uh, you know, that first moment when you got to, those first couple of months when you've got to teach an exuberant young happy dog not to jump up. And so <laughs> mm-hmm. for them, those dogs would go in a foster condition, be trained to the public access test very much like any organization using puppy raisers would do. And then they go into the home for specific task training. So, I, you know, I wish I could say there was one clear path, but because we are a custom organization and we are working with individuals who just want great support and great curriculum and a, 
a great organized method to progress to the service dog relationship because we operate in a custom fashion. It does vary very much. And how do people with disabilities apply or contact you to get a dog? Well, we have a website, possibilitydogs.org, and there's a an email address on that website, which is just info at possibilitydogs.org. We do have some people who connect to us through our Facebook page, which is just, you know, Possibility Dogs on Facebook. Once they have queried us and, and we can determine if we're a good fit for their needs, then there's an application process that's gone through where they not only supply more information about their own needs and life situation, but they also present documentation from their mental health and medical caregivers supporting the use of a service dog to mitigate the disability. And that's a huge thing for us. We do need that medical and professional recommendation because we need to determine that the presence of the dog is really, you know, considered and appropriate as a professional sees it. Because sometimes, you know, it's very tempting to think, oh, I've got this thing and all I need is a dog, where a second set of eyes and professional expertise in the condition would say, you may need a dog down the road, but not yet, or that the dog is, is not really an appropriate therapy in this context. So, so there's, a, there's a very formal application process that, that occurs. And then once it goes through review with our organization, then if approved, we start moving forward. And we start moving forward identifying the right dog. And, uh, and we never just go with the first one we see. You know, we're looking for a pool of two or three good candidates. And then we begin establishing also the resources local to the handler, to the potential partner that will be able to support this process. It's a very meticulous considered process, and it has to be. You know, even if you go through a program that supplies service dogs, you know, one of the, the big famous programs or a state-level program, they're going to tell you it takes time, and it takes time with us as well. Often from application to placement to training, it may still be a year, a year and a half before someone is partnered by a fully trained service dog, and that's not an unusual time frame in service at all. No, it's not. I was going to say that's actually pretty quick considering mm-hmm. all the things that have to to occur before that working partnership can be a, can be matched with each other. That's pretty exactly. quick. Exactly. Well, part of it, you know, is that people who want the co-trained partnership often, you know, take the role of both the puppy raiser ultimately and, you know, the recipient service dog. So they step in very early or can, in many cases, step in early. And that's why that 18-month window is there. There are some partners that, you know, applied with us a year ago. And because of the nature of their condition, you know, we've got to get a dog to a certain place before that dog is even ready to meet them and work with them because of their own, you know, physical limitations, Yeah, um, the handlers. So, you know, and that may be more like two, two and a half years. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very careful thing. And I have to ask this question, how do you fund all of this work? Do the individuals that receive a dog have to pay for the dogs or do you guys do fundraising? How does that work? We do fundraising and we do not charge for the dogs. We are a a no-charge organization, but we are up front with clients that what they can contribute to the process does help speed the process along. Because at any given time that we are actively fundraising, we have more than one client. And, you know, it is, it is completely possible for a very well-meaning organization to overcommit themselves into the red. And we can't do that. 
And so what we have to do if we have only a limited amount of resources and X number of clients is when we see that our budget could be exceeded by the clients we currently have, we have to shut down applications for a period of time until that account builds back up again. And so, you know, there are clients that we have who financially are ready to engage with this and they just need the help. They need the evaluation help to find the right dog. They need to find the right trainer. They need a very considered curriculum. They need to know and then have access to someone who can give them public access testing and task testing. And so for them, they, you know, are ready to make the financial and able to make the financial commitment forward. And so they work that way. For mm-hmm. others who have a, a profound you know, financial need, we step in and, and help considerably in that fashion, but it may move much more slowly because obviously, again, we've got any number of clients in progress. And if at the point we're afraid we may run into the red, we will stop the application process until that fund builds back up again. Which makes so, perfect yeah, we are, sense. You know, we're yeah. a 501c3 and donors, you know, donations are tax deductible and, and we've been very well supported by donors, but, but it's... Uh, but it's a, never enough, enough, right? It's yeah. never enough <laughs> and, and the need is great. You know, the need is it's great. huge. Yeah, the need is overwhelming. Well, I have to ask you this question. Can you tell us about the adorable dog that's on the cover of the Possibility Dogs? <laughs> the adorable dog on the cover of the Possibility Dogs is Jake Piper. And Jake Piper was a puppy brought to my doorstep dying at 10 weeks old. Oh. Uh, he he um, had been abandoned and he was both starving and very, very sick. And he had happened to wobble out and follow a neighbor who was very much allergic and understood that I rescued dogs. And so he brought him to my porch and sort of handed him to me. And um, Jake was not a dog I would have originally considered for service when I looked at him because my first thought was he just needed to have his life saved. He was dying. But ultimately, as we were able to medically save him and support him and integrate him into a family of dogs and into my family, we recognized that behind this abandoned little creature was a dog of tremendous potential to work, period. And then we realized he had tremendous potential for service. And so, because I wanted to know what the co-trained, the owner-co-trained partnership would be like, I wanted to go through that process myself and find out what was hard, what was easy, what needed more support, what resources I struggled to find, I began teaching Jake Piper because I, you know, I thought I can't really support other owner co-trainers if I don't know what the process is like myself. <laughs> and as it happened, he, he really was that dog, that dog that we seek, you know, earnestly. And then ultimately, I would have a, a medical event as a result from an infection I picked up in the search field. And, you know, we did not know it. I didn't even know it when the manuscript was finally submitted for this book. But he would become my service partner due to uh, a stroke that I had in the hospital in intensive care. And now I have, especially on bad days, some mobility issues where I can't feel a foot. And he is now my mobility partner on those days when I really struggle to walk downstairs or step up on curbs or get up from a seated position. But at the time I began the book, at the time I began the research, even at the time that I submitted the final manuscript for this book, which was last August, we had no idea that that he would be ultimately recommended for me. That's so beautiful. It's amazing. We don't know what we need from dogs sometimes and how one is going to fulfill that need for us and really change everything. Yes. You know, I think so much of this, not only my own journey into working with dogs, but into a successful partnership of any kind 
with a dog is to being open, to keeping our eyes open to what's happening before us and to not prejudging it, to yeah. just, you know, being open to possibility of, of a new path for ourselves and our learning and certainly to what a dog is capable of giving. Yeah, I could not agree more with you. That is so true and, and such a wonderful way to end our time together today because that's really what it is all about is being open and flexible and, and willing. You know, I think that's a big part of it. I know I've been partnered with a service dog for over 20 years and every day I still learn something new and, and I'm amazed at what Whistle teaches me and my other dogs have taught me and what they continue to do. It's just, it's incredible. Yes, I agree. And, you know, beside, I think, a, a great working dog, if we are not only open to them and mirror them, we become very much like them in, yes, their, we in do. their flexibility, <laughs> in their openness, in their willingness yes. to learn new things. You know, they, yes. they keep us young. <laughs> yes, they do. They absolutely do. That is so true. And I know you mentioned your website. I, I just want to say that again for our listeners, which is possibilitydogs.org. And if That's someone correct. wants to volunteer or if they want to apply for a dog, can they do both of that through this website? Yes, yes. Both at info at possibilitydogs.org. And that's, yeah, that's the portal really for donations, volunteerism, as well as application. And it's important to note, you know, we do work with clients also who want to train a talented dog for comfort to the community. And that's a very important part of what we do, too. So I encourage anybody with any of those interests to contact us. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being with us, Susanna. We could talk to you all day, and we hope that you'll come back and visit with us again because I know that this is not your first book. You also have the wonderful book, Scent of the Missing. So I am guessing there's going to be another book from you before long that that we hope you'll come back and tell us about future work and adventures that you are engaging in. Thanks so much. I'd be glad to. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us. We love to hear from you, so please keep those emails coming. And you can always contact us at Marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, at PetLifeRadio.com. And you can follow Working Like Dogs on Facebook and Twitter and at WorkingLikeDogs.com. So thank you so much, and we look forward to being with you again soon. Take good care. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand. Only on PetLifeRadio.com.